complete inclusivity and also personal effort. So sometimes, of course, we all hear about the personal effort part and we think, well, that's a drag, you know, like, um, but it's meant to be tremendously liberating. You know, like, okay, here are tools, try them out, experiment, check out, check out for yourself if this seems true, if it's beneficial, if it's helpful. No one can do it for you, but no one has to do it for you. Look at that, don't believe anything, as the Buddha said. Don't believe anything just because I, the Buddha, said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself if it's true. And I thought, that's breathtaking. You know, he didn't say like half of you can see for yourself what's true or the special people or follow me, I'll show you what's true. It was like, see for yourself, here are some tools. And so that's the whole flavor of meditation practice. It's like this great experiment in life and checking things out. And even though these days it's so, meditation so equated with stress reduction because it, it does that and has all those effects apparently on one's brain and um, immune system and uh, genetic system, epigenetics and all those things. Um, it's really a very radical thing because it's not just about relaxing. It's not just about getting less stressed. It's this very deep exploration. Okay, where is happiness to be found? Is it where I've been taught? what other people say, or is it somewhere else? Where's strength, truly? Is it an endless fantasies of revenge? And we might feel strong, we do feel strong for a moment, but over and over and over and over and over and over again, is that real strength? To be that caught in actually someone else's actions? And who am I? Am I this totally separate, independent person? I've been taught maybe all my life I should be in control of everything. And is that true? Is there another kind of truth that has more to do with connection and interconnection and being part of a, a bigger network? And like, what is true? about myself, what is true about others. And, you know, I would go on because so much of my own practice and teaching has been about loving kindness, which is its own, own methodology, is loving kindness or, you know, being, being loving, does it really mean you're stupid? You know, is that as sentimental and silly as it sounds? Or is it kind of strength in that as well? Couldn't you be compassionate towards someone and at the same time know you're not going to give in because it's wrong? Couldn't you have a balance of compassion for yourself and compassion for others? You know, some very deep questions that are all part of the meditative process, and we don't necessarily sit and think them through, but we experience them on all kinds of different levels as we pay attention. And so... Um, it's even if you get into it because you think it's just going to help you sleep better or something, you know, uh, it's so much more, in fact, and it's challenging. It's deeply challenging of our set ideas and the ways we hold things and, and what we've imagined perhaps even possible for us. So 
I came back from India in 1974, like I said, and uh, Joseph and Jack and I were going around teaching um, the meditation practice when we were invited, and uh, <clears throat> we would kind of wait for an invitation. You know, it wasn't, they weren't all that frequent, but they were happening, and uh, Finally, somebody suggested that we try to start a center of our own in this country, a retreat center. So we thought, oh, that sounds good. And to a lot of people's continual regret, the people who really knew how to do it, like knew how to get a mortgage and things like that, were all in the East Coast. So we left California and, and came back East. And people say to us sometimes, well, there was nothing you could have had anywhere. You know, like, why didn't you do it in Hawaii? <laughs> it's like, ended up here. So we looked up and down the East Coast for a while and finally found this place in Barry, Massachusetts, um, which at the time was a Catholic novitiate. And the country was going through what at the time was called the gas crisis, where, um, you know, big, big buildings like that were really expensive to heat. And so a lot of property was being sold off. And, and, uh, we went and looked at it, as many of you have heard me or someone tell the story, we went and looked at it um, the end of 1975. And we were really torn about what to do. On the one hand, we felt like it was perfect. You know, it's pretty, it's, how many of you have been there? Yeah, okay, so it's, it's pretty, it's placid, it's quiet, there's not much happening in Barry. it just seemed, like a perfect place for a meditation center. But on the other hand, it seemed um, like it was too big, you know, too big, too far away. Um, we had not had, you know, tremendous response everywhere. I mean, there were people coming, but it, it wasn't like, you know, you could feel what was going to happen at all. And so we thought, wow, this place is too big. Who knows how many people in this country want to learn how to meditate? or learn this style, this particular form of meditation. So we were really unsure about what to do, so we went to downtown Barry for lunch. And I don't know if you went downtown when you were there um, on your way in, but it's a very classical New England town with a town green. And in those days, it had a monument on the town green, which was um, had engraved upon it the Barry town motto, which was tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that, and we said, okay, that's an omen. <laughs> Any town that has a motto like Tranquil and Alert should have a meditation center in it. Because <laughs> not only are those the two words that are often <clears throat> associated with meditation, we often talk about their balance. You know, we're, we're deepening calm and tranquility and peace, but also alertness, energy, interest in our experience. So it's both sides. So that's the Barrytown motto. It's still the Barrytown motto. And I really enjoy that. You know, we have, I think, two police cars. And, um, you know, it's just tranquil and alert. And uh, these friends of mine got married in town. And that's what's stamped on their wedding certificate, tranquil and alert, which I think is a good blessing for a marriage. So that's good. So the building we bought was built in stages. Um, the last stage was this novitiate. But... The first was just the, the main part of the building was a private home built by um, someone named Colonel Gaston. 
and there's a, a book in the Barrytown Library, like the history of Barry, and it has this quote from Colonel Gaston, who it turns out had his own personal motto that he tried to live by, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. So I read that and my first thought was, I wonder how well he was getting along with his neighbors who maybe were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. <laughs> so I like telling those two stories in juxtaposition because so often we do have a kind of motto, don't we? A, a theme, a, a thought in our heads, a recurrent thought about who we are, where happiness is to be found, where we'll find meaning in life, what we're capable of, what we want to do each day. And very often that aspiration, that theme, that motto is so um, constrained, you know, by all kinds of conditioning. And so one of the things we say in meditation practice and one of the things we experience is that we get a sense of those constraints and we realize we don't need to abide by them. We can get bigger in our imagination, our sense of what's possible, where we think we'll find happiness, that we even deserve happiness, things like that. I had a Tibetan teacher um, who since died, but um, he was a, a tremendous teacher and he, he used to say things to us like, and this is of course a paraphrase, like, um, why is it that your sense of aspiration, your sense of what's possible for you, is so small? Why is it so, so meager? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings, to be totally free? Why not? And in the process of looking, we'd often see why not. You know, why, why do I feel like I can do so little? So aspiration and really expanding that whole sense is one of the um, aspects of being in the meditative process, is that we see the conditioned nature of those constraints. And we just pay attention, we look, you know, we see, wow, look at that habit. I thought it was so great, maybe not so great. I always think, every time I'm in this room, I think about this time I was teaching here, and <clears throat> I had a friend sitting like in that area over there, and she told me afterwards that she was sitting thinking, there's no one else, nowhere else in the whole world I'd rather be than in this room right now, listening and doing this practice. This is like perfect. There's nowhere else I'd want to be. And then she glanced out the window into that other building and she saw this dance class going on. And she right away she started thinking, I'm in the wrong place. I should have gone there. Why am I here? I think about it every single time I'm in this room. But that's, that's what we do, right? It's like, oh, th this is not good enough. I need that. Or once I went, I go to Washington, D.C. about once a month to teach. And uh, one year, I tried to see the cherry blossoms, you know, in the spring when they're all so beautiful. And, um, and I could only get there at night, you know, so that was, and it was a great experience, but it was its own kind of experience. So a friend of mine knew that, so the next year, she said, okay, I'm gonna take you during the day. <coughs> You're gonna to get to see them. So we went during the day, and I just thought it was 
gorgeous. It was just like so beautiful, these delicate blossoms and so many of them. And I thought, wow, this is so beautiful. And then she said, my friend said, oh no, they're past the peak. And then I thought, I'm having a bad experience. Like, <laughs> this isn't good enough. I missed the peak, right? So there's so many habits we have that just keep generating that sense of, of dissatisfaction and I don't have enough and whatever it might be. And so um, we see those and you see yourself starting to go down that road. I'm so stupid. Why did I wait till this week? I could have gone to the cherry blossoms last week. I mean, really, you know, what kind, you know and, and we see ourselves beginning that arc and we realize, I don't need to go there. That promises so much happiness for some strange reason. It's like a magnet. But look at what happens every single time I do that. I don't need to go there. We practice letting go. We practice beginning again. You know, so it's tremendously empowering to realize that we can, we can take a look at all of those assumptions and ways maybe we've been and other people have laid on us and all of that. And, and continue just to expand. So that sense of aspiration and breaking free of a lot of that conditioning is one whole part of what happens in meditation. And the other part is, I think, a kind of patience, or um, which is also a word that probably has a bad reputation. You know, so I don't mean doggedness or complacency or being a doormat or something like that, but, but realizing, okay, you know, things may take time. I can't, I, I often tell this story actually in teaching meditation um, about my friend, Joseph Goldstein, who um, I heard tell the story just once and that's what's dangerous, you know, so. He was about nine years old, I think, and uh, he was growing his first and I believe his only garden. And he said he'd get so impatient when the little green fluffy stuff was coming up on top of the carrots, he'd pull them up to help them grow faster. So he didn't get much of a harvest. And he said that's probably why it was his only garden. Right? But we can be like that too, which doesn't help. It's not going to grow faster than nature has deemed, you know, so we do our part and life does its part. Nature does its part. And so even as we have like a bigger and bigger sense of what's possible for us and where happiness lies, we also know it's step by step. If you lose it, if you go far away, if your mind wanders, it's not like a disgrace. That's the process. And we let go and we begin again. That's the essence of everything. And that's the one reason I really loved meditation practice because I felt like it was, it's like the, it, the really big life lessons happened in these itty bitty little packages. You know, so it's like if you left here and you ran into a friend and they said, what'd you do? And you said, I felt a few breaths and my mind wandered and I brought it back. It would be like, huh. <laughs> How long were you there? <laughs> but that's a very big deal. 
because it's not easy, is it? You know, usually what happens is your mind wanders and you think, and you realize it, you know, at some point you think, I'm awful, I'm terrible. No one else in the room is thinking. I'm the only one who's thinking. They're all sitting here in bliss. They're all sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. Or maybe it's golden light. I forget the color of that light I read about, but <laughs> it's some kind of light and I don't have it, they have it. They're all enlightened or they're very close to being enlightened. I'm the only one who's thinking, they're not thinking. Maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking lofty thoughts. They're thinking spiritual thoughts. They're thinking loving thoughts. I'm the only one who's sitting here thinking about those lights that are surrounding the window. Why am I thinking about those lights surrounding the window? I don't, you know, I don't own this place. And, um, right? So when we do that, not only are we extending the period of distraction, sometimes considerably, but it's so demoralizing, it's so exhausting. I'm so bad, I'm so stupid, right? So we practice letting go and begin again, that's a huge change. And we take it right into our lives. <coughs> you make a mistake. You stray from your chosen course. You lose sight of your aspiration. Is it actually gonna help to spend a week and a half in that kind of corrosive self-blame? Will you have any energy at the end of that process to really make a difference, to determine to be different? Or does it help more to let go and start over? That's the whole question that we look at. And, and we just, you can decide for yourself, you know, just like the Buddha recommended. It doesn't necessarily mean you're weak at all or you lose, you know, intensity or rigor or um, determination. But I find it a very interesting question, like how do I learn best? And how do I really have the energy to pick something up again if I've dropped it or something like that? So when you practice with the breath, you're also practicing in conversation. You're practicing forgiving yourself when you've blown something and having the energy to move on in a better way. And no one even has to say the word forgiveness. It's like we're doing it. We're doing it again and again and again. We're with the breath. We're a billion miles away. We realize it. We let go. We come back. And so we really practice for life. To see how, how these things, if these things and how these things might might affect us in, in our actual lives. So, what are you thinking about? I think they're gonna have a microphone for you. Okay, so uh, Joel, hear the question? Um, the question was, if people who've experienced trauma, whether it's sexual, physical, whatever kind, uh, if it's recommended they meditate differently because the meditation seems to increase sensitivity. 
In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, because the essence of um, the process of meditation is balance. And balance looks different for everybody all the time. That's why it's like tranquil and alert. Um, and, and that sense of balance manifests in a million different ways and working toward it. Because the belief is that the whole work is moving our system into greater and greater balance. Um, not being caught in what might be our usual kind of grabby thing like, well, if I have a big insight before like 8.45, I can leave, you know, like, um, but all the work is moving our system into greater balance. And uh, it could be in big ways, like balance between loving kindness and compassion for ourselves and for others. Or it could be in very direct and immediate ways, like, um, you know, there's a very famous story from the Buddhist tradition about this man who became a monk, and before he was a monk, he was a musician, he was a lute player. And uh, when he became a monk, he was really striving, 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 trying way too hard in his meditation. He was really, like, uptight. And, and the Buddha came upon him and said, oh, monk, uh, back when you were a lute player, which is obviously some kind of stringed instrument, I don't know if I've ever seen one. Um, back when you were a lute player and you tied the string too tight, what happened? And the monk said, well, it made the wrong sound. And the Buddha said, just so. You're tying your string too tight. And of course, it could be too loose, too. So we're always talking about balance. And, and what's very hard is that um, balance is so individual and it's so changing. It's not like you get it, you know, and then you keep it. And so, um, you know, for me, as another example, in my earliest practice, uh, the first meditation instruction I ever got was the one we just did, stand, feel your breath. And my first thought actually was, this is stupid, you know, I came all the way to India. Where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to change my whole life? And then I thought, hey, how hard can this be? And it was like, whoa, this is not so easy. <laughs> and one of the reasons it wasn't so easy was because almost as soon as this breath began, I was kind of mentally leaning forward to get ready for the next 50. And that was really my mental posture. It wasn't just because I was sitting in a floor in India. Um, you know, I was very frightened, I was very wary, I was very guarded. A lot had already happened to me in my life, and it was only 18, and I didn't know what might happen next. And so for me, in that moment, balance looked like settle back. Let the breath come to you. I used to say to myself, you're breathing anyway. All you need to do is feel it. You don't have to be so hypervigilant, you know, about it. But of course, we can be way too far back, too. And what we need is to come forward and engage and participate. So that's why, first of all, if you can work with a teacher, it's a tremendous thing because it's so individual. And, um, you know, if someone has a very traumatic history, then there are just ways of looking for balance, you know, so that you're not getting... Um, so extraordinarily sensitive without something like a real sense of, of equanimity, of, of uh, kind of expansiveness, you know, to balance that out. Also, concreteness. Um, there are lots of techniques that are about bringing awareness to your life experience. 
so as another example from my practice, um, in 1984, we brought over a meditation teacher from Burma to the Insight Meditation Society, uh, named Saira Upandita, who we'd never met before. But we heard he was this really great teacher, so we brought him. And I and you know, many folks started sitting for three months under his guidance. And uh, it turned out to be this really fierce, intense, demanding teacher. Every once in a while, I think, what did we do? <laughs> um, and he also, we were meeting six days a week for these uh, short meetings, which used to be called interviews. Gina has this program, she's trying to change that word, but I don't know if it'll ever change. We're meeting six days a week for these short meetings just to describe our meditation practice and get some feedback. So we were asked to, when we went to those meetings, to be able to talk about one sitting period and one walking period from the previous 24 hours. And so most of us took some notes, just like you know when I said I got really sleepy over and over again, something like that. So I would go, there was a whole long period when I went in to see him weeks and weeks really I'd go in to see him before I could say anything about my sitting or my walking he'd look at me and he'd say tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea which was nothing so I'd walk out and I'd sit and I'd walk and when I went to drink a cup of tea I'd feel my arm reaching for the tea I'd feel the warmth of the texture of the teacup I'd smell the tea I'd taste the tea and I'd go in to see him the next day, and before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face. It was nothing. So I left, and I sat, and I walked as mindfully as I could, and I drank the tea as mindfully as I could, in case he went back to that. And then when I washed my face, I felt my hands in the water, and I felt the water on my face. And I'd go in the next day, and before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. So it went on and on and on until like the whole day was activity after activity, which I tried to be in contact with, really connecting to, really being mindful of. Um, and that would also be a kind of thing that it's not second best and it's not um, remedial practice. It is a practice. And it's perfect practice, actually, because that's what we want. And yeah, not to be doing it so slowly, but but to really be mindful wherever we are. And so um, it's all kinds of things like that, you know, that, that would be kind of creative and um, personal in, in that kind of work. a pleasure and honor to have you with us tonight and um, since you spent so much time um, with loving kindness as your practice there's something that I've been um, thinking about that maybe you can help with <laughs> um, so in some of his semantics uh, around the words we use when we're talking about loving kindness in particular um, you mentioned sentimentality sentiment um, and, um, and compassion. And then I also think of empathy. And these three things are, are a little blurry for me. Um, I tend to be pretty empathetic. I'm very 
you know, I can cry at a Lifesavers commercial, I mean, you name it, right? Like, I, I'm very in touch with my emotionality. Um, but I, I, and rec I recognize that, but I also feel like sometimes that's a barrier to action or to, compa like, real compassion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm blinded by all of this emotion and realizing I'm not really being compassionate. So I, if you could speak about that a little bit. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, well, I think you're right. I think that's very astute and a very insightful comment. Sometimes the things we um, treasure that are good um, when there's not kind of a balance here too, then they're holding us back, actually. So um, it's not even so much emotionality, but um, it's feeling uh, almost too devastated sometimes by the suffering interviewer and um, helping professions, you know, uh, absolutely know this. You don't need me to certainly say it. Um, and interestingly, too, like now there's some amount of research that's going into um, trying to see the difference between empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. So the way it's talked about is this, or the way I talk about it is this. Um, if we're not in touch with ourselves, even like the really painful stuff, it's not going to be that easy to have empathy. And it's actually empathy, that, that resonance, like, ooh, I don't know exactly what you're feeling, but, um, you know, I've been through times I felt really abandoned, I felt unseen, I felt really hurt, and I can sense that you're likely in that kind of place. Um, and we feel it, you know, it's really, it's, it's a neurological resonance, mirror neurons, and it's a, a feeling tone, we feel it in our bodies, we feel it in our hearts. Um, but, and there, there's a couple ways this is described, when we get lost in that, then empathy becomes personal distress. Um, you know, when it becomes too much about me, oh God, if it were me, I would, you know, like. Um, and that is exactly the way you describe it. It's not a bad thing, but it, it exhausts us, it keeps us from trying, we get really discouraged, we, we feel overwhelmed. Whereas we can have that sense of empathy and it might lead to compassion instead. So um, compassion is defined in the Buddhist tradition as a trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering and like a movement toward to see if we can be of help. So you've got to have some energy, right? Or you're not going to move toward, you can't be exhausted. And we know that, right? Because when we get exhausted, we're not going to do it. You need a, a kind of, almost a sense of sufficiency or inner abundance. Mm -hmm. If you think, well, I'll, I'll step back a moment and keep describing this. Um, qualities like compassion are sometimes talked about as a form of generosity. It's like generosity of the spirit. It doesn't have to be material generosity. But material generosity is often examined because that's um, a concrete way to look at the nature of generosity altogether, even generosity of spirit. So we know that there needs to be some inner sense in order to be able to give, or the best kind of giving, 
comes from some inner sense of something, right? And uh, it was always so striking to me, say, being in Burma, which was such a poor country, one of the poorest in the world, where um, every single bite of food you had was an offering to you uh, as a meditator, because they don't charge anything. They don't charge for room and board or anything when you go to those centers to, to sit, because everything you need will be given to you by the people, because they so treasure the meditation, they're so trained to generosity, like, in Burma, if it's your birthday, you don't expect to get gifts, you expect to give gifts. That's how you celebrate. So maybe it's your birthday, you go off to the monastery, you feed as many people as you possibly can, or somebody dies and you want to honor their memory, somebody in your family, so you go to the monastery, and same thing. And so, you know, and, and they were so poor and they gave everything they could give. And then, you know, sometimes coming back here and coming upon people, as we know, you know, it's not necessarily the people with the most money who are the most generous. Because sometimes, no matter how much you have externally, you have an inner feeling of, I don't have enough. I'm, you know, it's like such an inner impoverishment. I could never have enough. And it's so hard to give from that place. So it's the same with compassion. You know, if, if you just feel like, I can never make a difference. This is like impossible. I can't even make a little difference, you know, it's like, um, you're not going to have that sense of resourcefulness or being able to go forward. Um, there's a kind of stability in compassion. Uh, sometimes we think when we look at suffering, this is almost sentimentality too, um, it's better if we feel overwhelmed. You know, that it's a higher quality caring if we're just like overwhelmed. Like I went to Russia uh, many years ago with Joseph to teach, it was then the Soviet Union, it was actually illegal to teach meditation. <laughs> so we went as part of a tour group. And uh, we even brought Joseph's mother as kind of cover. <laughs> and every afternoon, instead of going into a museum or something like that, Joseph and I would disappear. And we would go off to someone's living room with a translator and, and uh, we would just be doing this teaching. And, I was talking a lot about compassion, so when I would, I, and would be translated, I would just start getting this really funny feeling in the room. So I finally sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And he said, oh, it's like this, this terrible feeling, like you feel broken and nearly destroyed by the suffering. And he said, it's like, Someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart. And I thought, well, no wonder this is a really funny feeling in the room, you know? Like, well, we can go there. We can think, oh, I don't really care because I'm not like, but we know. And I come back to people in, you know, helping professions of some kind. Like, there's a difference between being, feeling broken and burnt out and having some resiliency mm. and being able to keep on going. And, um, you know, so compassion is its own thing, really. And, and we definitely need empathy. We need to have that resonance to care. But, um, you know, we might feel that someone's in a state of suffering and we might blame them, right? I gave you perfectly good advice a year ago. If you followed that, you wouldn't be such a mess. Or um, <laughs> we might feel frightened by their suffering or we might feel, 
overwhelmed by their suffering or something like that. Or we might have a compassionate response, like that sense of going towards them. Um, it's all very delicate and it's very profound to explore because it makes a very, very big difference in our lives. So the one balancing point, and this is just something to look at to see if it's true for you, um, is this quality called equanimity, which um, has a sense of spaciousness, like I'm gonna do everything I can to try to make a difference, and I'm not in control. You know, I can't make your choices for you, I can't make you act differently. It's like, I care, it's not abandoning somebody, you know, or withdrawing, but it's realizing that's the nature of things, that's truth. And um, also, what I see in front of me right now isn't necessarily the end of the story, right? Like, I'll do everything I can right now, and maybe it's not going to have this like, dramatic breakthrough right now, but that doesn't mean nothing happened either. Because so much of what we do is really like planting a seed. And sometimes we see, we see later, like, whoa, look at that. You know, that actually set out a ripple effect that I, I might not have been able to guess at. So equanimity training is its own great thing, you know, that helps us really have some resiliency. Hi, um, I have a question that I think is probably also about balance, as I think probably all of these questions are in some way or another. And it has to do with kind of what you were talking about earlier about this process of letting go and beginning again. Um, and specifically this, the process of letting go and not clinging, which um, you know, seems to be so central to the Buddhist tradition and is also so hard <laughs> to practice. Um, and um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about the balance between letting go and not clinging and sort of making an effort and striving, which I think is also, because letting go and not clinging is not about apathy and about not trying and not um, attempting to do anything, right? It's not passive, but I wonder how to balance not clinging with the kind of effort and striving, like for instance when you're in periods where you're working towards a goal and you know it's something that you want but you're also aware that you know this might not work out or whatever it may be, so if you could just talk a little more about that. Uh-huh. Well it's very hard, you know, like all these words are translations and English is maybe not the most um, intricate language, you know, because we use the same word to describe all kinds of different things. And um, clinging in the way it's used in the Buddhist tradition has a couple of different manifestations very, you know, strongly. One is um, kind of a tunnel vision so that we fixate on something. Um, it's like, um, I just moved into a new apartment. I live in Barry, but I have a sublet apartment in New York, and I had one for like seven years, and then the owner decided to sell it, so, um, which I couldn't afford to buy, so I, I left and I found another apartment to rent. So my old apartment was furnished, and my new apartment was not, so I had to either bring things down from Barry or get things. So 
in the midst of that obsession, it's like I'd walk into this room and all I would see would be that painting against the wall. I don't know if it's a painting. I can't quite see it, but it's in a frame. You know, so um, it's just like, <laughs> maybe I want one just like that. Um, probably put a little darker frame, but I don't know, maybe not. It's like, huh, I wonder how much it costs. Um, huh, good flower arrangement in front of it too. Maybe I'll rearrange everything in my living room. And I'll, you know, so like you're talking and there's all kinds of stuff going on, but it's like, you know, it's that kind of narrowness, that fixation, that really makes us very unhappy. First of all, we miss so much that might be pretty good. Um, really, gifts, the gifts of life, you know, around us, and we don't even notice them, because it's like, wow, I wonder if I could get a bigger version of the painting, you know, there's just like, so there's a clinging in that sense, and so we might fixate on what we don't have and overlook what we do have. Um, so fixation and clinging are kind of the same thing, narrow, glue-like um, relationship. Uh, we might be fixated, um, this is something that interests me a lot because it has a lot to do with loving kindness meditation too. Um, one thing research is showing these days is that uh, one of the most powerful things anybody can do in a healing sort of way is do a gratitude meditation. Like spend few minutes every night and write down three things you're grateful for from the day. And I always say one of them could be that you're breathing, you know, um, it doesn't have to be something enormous, but, and I know my own personal and cultural conditioning is such that that wouldn't be my automatic thing to do at the end of the day. I'm much more used to and trained to, what can I complain about? <laughs> you know, it's like Verizon. <laughs> seven hours uh, waiting or you know and so that could be a kind of clinging I'm so used to seeing what's wrong and recounting what's wrong and going over it and over it and over it and over it that it actually takes some letting go and intentionality to stretch and say oh what are three things that I can be grateful for from today it doesn't mean everything went perfectly. And that you don't mind the fact that the Verizon guy went to the wrong apartment. You know, and you waited there for seven hours to show up. Like, that's not right. But it's not the only thing about that day. You know, so again, it's that kind of narrow um, clinging that makes us miss so much. And then, so that's one whole meaning of it, a kind of fixation. And then there's a meaning of clinging which has to do with control. Um, the opposite of the clinging doesn't mean indifference or not caring. It means recognizing how things are. And so I think every parent in the world goes through this, right? A lot. Um, you might want your child to be a certain way and they're So what do you do? You know, do you insist? You know, or is there a way you can be with them and love them and enjoy them for who they are rather than 
the way you've decided they need to be. Um, or, um, and this is tricky, it goes back a little bit to the conversation on compassion. Uh, what if you're trying to help someone, they don't get better fast enough? You know, that's so frustrating. So what do we do? Do we say, well, I've done that for a week and a half, I'm done. You know, or do we say, okay, I'm gonna hang in here and look at my insistence that you get better right away. You know, things like that. So um, it's confusing to us because to let go of the clinging a little bit doesn't mean inertia or you don't really, really try, or you have no ambition or anything like that. But um, that idea that we have to be in control, we should be in control, doesn't actually help us meet our goals or, or get something done. It's just like, oh my God, you know, then I'm better. Something like that. I actually don't have a question. I mean, I can't, I guess I haven't, I don't know if I can, you know, articulate a question, but I guess listening to you, I'm thinking about the ways in which I am conditioned. Yeah. And, and that, you know, in the ways in which I suffer from my conditioning. And, and I guess I'm, I'm identifying a particular kind of conditioning, which is anxiety. You know, just being anxious and being anxious all the time. Um, <clears throat> and at first, I started to think about balance and the sort of the whole question of balance. <laughs> um, and 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 then I, you know, and then I'm, I'm thinking, well, the, the times when I feel like I my practice is actually helping me deal with the anxiety because I can sort of stop in a particular moment. Um, you know, when, when I'm able to stop and sort of think or feel through things, and then I know that I'm making a choice, and you know, and I'm sort of aware. Um, but then, at the same time, as you were saying what you said just now, I'm thinking about anxiety and control, and that anxiety is sort of the feeling that comes up, and control is the response to that to that feeling. Um, you know, because sort of, you know, watching, paying attention to my sitting, my sitting practice. Um, so it's the anxiety that comes up because, you know, sort of a thought comes up and it, it sounds like the perfect solution to, you know, this, <laughs> this work that I'm doing or this job that I'm doing or this question that I'm asking or, oh, I've got it, you know. Um, but it's this, it's this control. It's like I'm trying to control this fear yeah. of, you know, not performing well or not doing what I have to do. And, um, so, yeah, so those are the thoughts that I've been Yeah, that's me. great. Do you want to hear that? Um, well, you know, we say anxiety is, is uh, part of the, what it's a manifestation of is a lot of energy, which is good, but not quite enough tranquility. So it's like the alert part, but not enough of the tranquil part. And um, when we say we're developing both sides. We are, but they're not always happening in perfect rhythm and harmony. And part of that is how we're made, you know, just some, some conditioning. Um, 
but the energy part is good, so don't think of it as all bad. <coughs> it really isn't. And with any high energy state like that, there are a couple of things we talk about, and they're a little different from one another, so a lot of it is an experiment. Some of it is balance, like you said. It's kind of like, um, almost like being able to soothe yourself and <coughs> come back into the moment, either through you know, that kind of real connection to something simple in the moment, like the glass. And sort of helping ground the energy. Um, and some of it is looking at um, what are often kind of almost distorted ways of thinking that produce so much of the anxiety of it. and catching those thoughts and then of course that's the practice being able to see the thought not hating yourself for it or you know while I'm meditating all this time why am I still thinking this way but being able to see it let it go so you've probably heard me tell the story because I tell it so often but um, I was teaching with this uh, friend Bob Thurman who's a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University I was teaching with him um, the Tibet house not too far from here which is the center he, he founded and uh, I was using this example of how we can get obsessed you know about the future and I said it's like you're sitting on an airplane in some New York City airport and you look at your watch and you think oh no I think this plane's going to be late I wonder how late probably not just a few minutes late it's going to be really really late what's that going to mean I wonder if I'll miss my connection I'm sure I'll miss my connection What's going to happen then? Oh no! I'll land in Portland, Oregon, and there won't be there won't be any cabs. It's going to be after midnight. Like, what am I going to do? As though Portland was famous for people vanishing if they landed after midnight. You know. So I said in that talk that um, I have like a mantra. I have a saying I use with myself when I see my own mind beginning that arc of anxiety, which is something will happen, right? Something will happen. There'll be a bus. I'll spend the night in the airport. I can't figure it out right now. Something will happen. So the reason I said I was teaching with Bob when I tell the story was because about six weeks after the class, he sent me an email which simply said, just landed in Portland. Lots of cabs. <laughs> you know? So I was like, but my mind, you know. So, so it's that distortion of thinking, like, what's going to happen to me? But I can't figure it out right now. That's just like, um, you know, so that's part of the practice too, is seeing the ways we think, oh no, it's never going to work out, or if I do this, only this, then, you know, everyone will, you know, so um, you get to see those thoughts, you can relax some, and come back into the moment. So that's one whole arena. And the, another arena is realizing it's a big energy, and big energies need a lot of space. Because if, if a big energy is trying to move through a very cramped, contained, tight space, it's really going to be jangling. So what helps you have a real big sense of space? Um, in meditation practice, it might be listening to sound. It might be doing loving kindness for all beings everywhere. Um, you know, it's really you're experimenting to see what helps you just really get a, a sense of expansiveness um, something I have often told the story too about looking at my own fear in meditation. Um, 
and I realized that uh, I should say first as a, a prelude, you know, of course we go from the breath to having trained and being aware of the breath, we look at emotions, we look at sensations, we look at all of our experience in a certain way that's balanced and uh, not so reactive because when we can just be there with them, that's where the learning can happen. So with fear, instead of fixating on you know, what the fear was about, it's almost like pivoting and looking at the actual experience of fear. What does it feel like in my body? What's the mood? What's it made of? Things like that. So um, something I often say, because it was very like, provocative and interesting for me, is that looking at my own fear, I realized that even though there's you know, that common saying that we're afraid of the unknown, that of course I'm afraid of the unknown, but I'm most afraid when I think I do know, and it's gonna be really bad. <laughs> and it's the stories I tell myself, oh, that's gonna happen, you miss your plane, you're gonna get poorly, you know, just like, it's those stories that really get me frightened. And when I remind myself I don't know, I actually feel some space. It's like, I don't know. That's when I feel relief. So it, it's a kind of knowing oneself and learning uh, from that observation. Yeah, doing that. So, yeah. Do you want to hand the microphone back? Um, thank you for your teachings, Shang. Um, I have a, a slight, um, I guess, seeking help here. Um, an interesting situation, um, and I'm just wondering what would be skillful means in dealing with the situation. So I have a family member, so I'm basically bearing witness to this, who mistreats another family member um, quite, you know, you know, visibly and mostly verbally. And of course, I'm just bystander witnessing this, and because I have a compassion practice, I tend to really feel incredibly sad and um, upset for both of them. And I don't know what to do and what, I mean, is there a way to intervene or is it even my place because it's between them? But then I'm having trouble dealing with my emotions because it is affecting me because I'm able to see the grief and the devastation that's kind of happening in front of me. Um, so just, you know, some thoughts on how to really deal with sensitivity and compassion in such situations. Mm -hmm. Well, it's always hard to know, isn't it? You know, I wish there was a formula for perfect action. But, um, I mean, if you feel someone needs to be protected, then, you know, there's something you need to do. And whether it works or not, it is another question, but um, we talk about compassion not as helping us in a way decide what to do, but changing why we do things. You know, it changes the motivation. Um, so instead of acting out of um, disgust or, you know, hatred, we act from, as you described it very beautifully, you know, this place of compassion. Um, and then we look at what to do really in the, it's almost like mindfulness in a bigger sense, it's like mindfulness of context. Um, mindfulness of 
um, skill. Um, if you saw a child reaching toward a flame, you would pull him back, you know, not out of hatred, or you'd shout or something like that. You know, not out of hatred for the child, but like, whoa, that is really, you know, that's going to hurt. Um, and there's, you know, there are more or less skillful ways of um, intervening. And uh, there's no guarantee that it would be accepted with any kind of grace. Um, and sometimes, it's, of course, the, quite the opposite happens, you know. So um, I think we all are, you know, we're all working toward greater skill in action. Um, and uh, including speech. And it's really hard. But, um, you know, so even though it's like incredibly formulaic and it's sort of a drag because it's so formulaic, you know, communications coaches would always tell you, uh, put things in I language, not in you language. And it makes us more vulnerable and it's not easy and it, it's can be kind of stilted sounding, but it's actually kind of interesting when you do that, you know, like, um, I once said to somebody, um, instead of saying you're like a rageaholic, you know, and you're nearly unbearable to be around, I said, because it was true, I said, I'm afraid of you. You know, this wasn't someone who had the capacity to hurt me, really. You know, like, I just said, I'm really afraid of you. It's like you go into a tirade. It's like, you know, so it's something like that. And it wouldn't be exactly that, of course, you know, but um, it's something, you know, to uh, do you the best you can, to say or do what seems appropriate. And then um, there's the place for equanimity. And it comes back to compassion being like generosity. Um, you can't always count on someone accepting your gift and saying, that's like the best sweater I ever got in my entire life. You know, wow, I'm putting it on right away. Um, you know, you'd like that, of course, you know, but uh, we don't know that. And so, can we actually have a kind of feeling of, okay, I came from the best place I could come from. I did it with as much sensitivity as I could do it. And it's like, I'm just not in control. It's just like that. Sound of the heating system right here? <laughs> What's going on? Air conditioner. Air conditioner. Wow.
Um, you've touched on this uh, in, in many different forms and in response to many different um, questions, but I'm kind of having a little bit of difficulty with uh, self-compassion, um, strangely, because <laughs> um, I hear it's easy. Um, but uh, particularly with, um, you know, breaking a habit, although I, I don't really like that term, but breaking a habit. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah. I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, well, it's hard. Um, uh, did you ever look at Kristen Neff's work or her website or anything like that? She, she sort of popularized the term self-compassion um, out of her work with loving-kindness meditation, out of her experience with loving-kindness meditation. Um, and it's very controversial because some people say, oh, there lies weakness, you know, and giving yourself too much of a break and uh, being lazy and stuff like that. So, you know, it's kind of controversial, but it's also growing in popularity. So it's, it's pretty interesting. So um, some of it comes, for me, it comes back to that question of like, how do I best learn? Am I actually making a better change by going on a tirade against myself for a week and a half? Or are it those, is it those times when I can like say, okay, I blew it, it's really bad, I regret it, I'm starting over. Things like that. And so some of it is that kind of introspection. And some of it, I think really, I, I have tremendous trust in the power of loving kindness meditation because I've done it for so long, I've taught it to so many, and it's really effective. Um, you know, not overnight, but it's a powerful, powerful practice, and um, it is its own method of meditation. It's um, a delicate practice. I'm sure many of you, or most of you, know this. Um, instead of gathering our attention around the feeling of the breath, we gather our attention around the repetition of certain phrases um, that are. Um, the heart's wish, you know, like, may I be happy. It's, like, it's also a practice of generosity. It's gift giving, like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, instead of, well, these are the 50 things I did wrong today, and let me go over them again, <laughs> you know, in case I missed one. It's like, give yourself a break, you know, for like five minutes, you know, and just look at the other side, you know, so. Um, it's, it's a very powerful practice, and I'm very gratified, because it is most of what I've, focused on in my own practice and in teaching and uh, you know for all these years in like research and science where the emphasis has been on mindfulness practice it's sort of moving over now and um, there's a lot being a lot more being done on compassion practice and including self-compassion and uh, I think it's really a tremendous thing it um, one of the controversial aspects of it like I've been in many conferences, where scientists have been presenting their findings to someone like the Dalai Lama. And um, I always joke about this because a lot of the scientists are my friends now. And, and they say something, you know, they go through whatever, you know, there's research on compassion practice in the foster care system in Georgia, and there's research on compassion practice in this place and that place. And, and so there's these presentations of the findings, and the concluding statement is often something like, 
And from this research, we might almost conclude that compassion can be trained. It's like a skill. And it's always said with like, you know, maybe I'll get the Nobel Prize, you know, it's like so astonishing a thought. Um, no, not really the Nobel Prize, you know, because they're not greedy, but it's like, this is amazing. Um, and I always sit there and I think, well, duh, you know. <laughs> but I think there is a big Western conditioning. I'm not exactly sure what it is. This is something that interests me a lot and I ponder it like, Maybe it's that compassion is like a gift and you either have it or you don't. If you don't have it, you're out of luck. Or maybe it's just this kind of um, spontaneous emotional thing and there's nothing you can do. Training, it sounds so cold and mechanistic, but it's not because really what we're training is attention. And compassion, the development of compassion will rest on how we pay attention. When you think of yourself. Do you pretty much only think about the mistakes you made today? Or can you give a little air time to wishing yourself well, or even the things you did right today, the good within you? When you look at others, do you even notice them? Or do you tend to look right through, not everybody, of course, but you know, people that you don't have an immediate uh, relationship to? Are they more like objects to you or people? You know, how do we pay attention to ourselves? How do we pay attention to one another? That's the birthplace of compassion. And we know attention is completely trainable. That doesn't have to be the way we were taught. It doesn't have to be the way we're used to. That's the whole premise of meditation practice. And so compassion is trainable because attention is trainable. And so we can be like very different. And so I would really um, encourage, if you're interested or, or moved by it, just some exploration of, of loving kindness practice. Cause, and it'll make a sneaky difference too. <laughs> you know, it really does. And, and this is something I also say over and over again. Because, um, well, I think we'd all like that great breakthrough experience to be able to say like, a, 515, I love myself completely, and you know, it's like, it's all over now. It's not usually like that. You may not feel anything great in your meditation, but you'll find you're different. If you look like I'll uh, maybe close in a few minutes with what is my, um, almost like my signature story about loving kindness meditation. So um, because it's its own method, I never really, well, you know, the years I lived in India and the years of my practice after that, um, I always wanted to do it and I always had the opportunity to do it like for an hour here or there, but never in a, a really focused way over a period of time. And I knew when you do the classical loving-kindness meditation, um, you, re you center your attention around the repetition of the phrases. You start with yourself offering loving kindness to yourself, and then you move on, say, to a benefactor, someone who's really helped you, someone you honor, um, you know, a friend, you know, you kind of go through these different categories to come to all beings everywhere, all of life. So I knew how it was done, but I never really had the chance to do it in that systematic way. So uh, we ended up buying the center in Barrie in 1976. We moved in on Valentine's Day. 
and there was no programming that was going to happen for a full month. Uh, so those of us who were there in the beginning thought, well, okay, we're here. Let's do a retreat ourselves. We'll just do a kind of self-retreat. So I thought, okay, I have a month. I don't have a teacher. I've never really done this before in this way, but I know how it's done. You start with yourself and you go through that whole sequence. So I'll do that. I'll do loving kindness practice for myself. So for, for not just for myself, but I'll do loving kindness practice. So the first week, I only did loving kindness practice for myself. Um, whether I was doing sitting meditation or walking meditation, I was just repeating those phrases and I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. And then at the end of the week, something happened, like in our larger community, some friend in Boston, and several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat, and I was one of the people leaving, so I was kind of in a frenzy getting ready to go up in one of the bathrooms, and I dropped this big jar of something on the floor, and it just like, it fell, and the jar broke, it shattered, and the stuff went everywhere. And I noticed the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. <laughs> you could have given me anything in the course of the week, and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. You know, so it really takes a special kind of patience to do that practice. Because of course we're always like, is that love? I don't know, maybe it was yesterday. And it's like, Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for a week. I'm going to do it for a month, whatever it is. And just check it out at the end. And when you check it out, don't look at your meditation experience as the point of evaluation. Look at your life. You know, look at how you speak to yourself when you make a mistake. Look at how you are when you drop a jar. Look at how you are when you meet a stranger. You know, are you really more there with them or not? That will, will be the proof, you know if it's actually working, so. Okay, thank you all so much. It was a great pleasure to be here with you. Um, may you uh, continue your practice and be very, very happy. I think we, do you have more announcements? Or are we free? We're free. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.